You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. And I'm your presidential candidate, Wade Bearden. And my opponent is clearly not ready for the important job of co-hosting this podcast. I'm Kevin McClinathan, the real co-host of Seeing and Believing for America. You thought the November election is going to be contentious. You haven't listened to Seeing and Believing. Uh, We're going to make this an episode to remember, mostly for my stunning victory over my opponent. (laughs) Listeners, we're going to take a look at the political documentary, Boy State, directed by Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. And we're also going to be continuing our Summer of Darkness film noir series with a look at the great Ida Lupino's road thriller, The Hitchhiker. It's betrayal and betrayal on this episode, episode 261 of Seeing and Believing. I will skip the part where I brag for three minutes about how great and cool I am. Seeing as we are all qualified young men of skill and character. People like that stuff. People like that stuff a lot. Some people say they're a sports junkie. I say I'm a politics junkie. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. I'm playing this like a game. I would like very much to win. I love it, boys. I love it. Where are you from? I come from a very modest family. Uh, I'm on the course to be the first one to graduate from high school. I am a progressive person and I'm in a room full of mostly conservative people. Our masculinity shall not be infringed. I've never seen so many white people ever. I feel like everybody has a secret underlying need for bipartisanship. A message of unity, as good as it sounds, is not winning anyone any elections. Listeners, we are here with episode 261 of Seeing and Believing. Kevin, the world's getting crazier and crazier. I want to go back to a a simpler time when you could pick up strangers on the side of the road and hang out with a thousand of your friends at the capital of Texas. Yeah, those were the days. Now it's (laughs) it's all just staying indoors all the time, not talking to strangers, and definitely not seeing your friends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not even a chance that you could pick up a killer hitchhiker anymore. And I don't know. It just, it all feels so sterile. Uh, oh, oh, the halcyon days. <laughs> they they are truly halcyon. I don't even know if that makes any sense. <laughs> this is what the this is what the quarantine has done to me. <laughs> We're cracking up. Listeners, we are excited about this episode. Episode 261, as I mentioned earlier. We're continuing our Summer of Darkness, our Noir series. We're gonna look at the hitchhiker from Ida Lapino. That's from 1953. We'll get to that film here in just a minute. This episode of Seeing and Believing, however, begins with a review of Boy State the new Apple TV Plus film from directors Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. Here's the film's official synopsis to get us going. Winner of the Sundance Grand Jury Prize, this rambunctious journey into the heart of democracy captures an unusual rite of passage. 1,100 teenage boys from across Texas come together to build a representative government from the ground up Kevin, where to begin? Where where to begin? <laughs> There's much to digest here, and we're going to get into some details as we go on. First off, I want to ask you this. After watching Boy State, do you wish while in high school you attended a version of Boy State in the state of New Mexico? And does this depiction of the particular event in the film have anything to do with your answer. <laughs> well, it, this film does make the process of going to to boys or girls state. There's a there's a girls only option as the film makes clear right at the beginning. Um, we only spend time with the boys only uh, group, obviously, for this film. But the film definitely makes it look like a very 
interesting process. And given that I'm more interested in politics now than I was back when I back in high school, I could kind of see the appeal of it now. But back in when I was actually eligible to take part in it, I probably wouldn't have been into it all that much. I will say that my wife actually was able to go to girls state. Oh, wow. And and absolutely hated every minute of it she's not the <laughs> she's not the sort of person who who is into you know debating and and political maneuvering that's not really uh her cup of tea at all so she made it sound like it really wasn't all that great so yeah i don't know i feel like this might be uh, an experience that is best left to the movie screen rather than doing it in person, which, you know, I, I enjoyed that screen experience quite a bit. I'm curious to know, uh, since you are a Texan native, though, Wade, <laughs> uh, what you made of this entire experience. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll kind of get into some details. Uh, but first, I I would have loved to go to boys camp, or boy, sorry, boys state, because I definitely get this this youth camp vibe where you're kind of coming together with a lot of people. You form friendships quickly. Uh, They're in the documentary playing a lot of sports. You're hanging out, uh, eating together. There's a big competition at the, at the center of all of this. It, It does seem kind of, kind of fun. And I, I watched the documentary and I thought, Oh, I would have loved to be a part of this. I wouldn't have loved to be filmed as I was a part of this, uh, but I, I think uh, it's it's definitely this fascinating take, and it is it, it is interesting because okay, it is Boise State from Texas, as I understand. This is something that occurs across every single state, with the exception of of Hawaii, and so we get we get a particular version here, and I don't think it's any coincidence that Texas was was chosen. When you think of Texas, you you certainly conjure up in your mind uh, a number of, you know, politically charged ideas about the state. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's fascinating. Ultimately, I'm kind of mixed on the movie. In one sense, I watched this and it's kind of it's kind of thrilling in a way to to see this big competition, this hyper uh, uh, competitiveness. Uh, I, on another side, I'm a little uneasy or uncomfortable about the whole process and the way this documentary was put together. So I don't know. I'll, I'll probably get into that a little more later. But overall impressions, I kind of like it, kind of um, not really into it. Well, let's delve into that actually a bit because I, I think that I share some of your reservations about the way that all of this is framed, even though it sounds like I might be I maybe might have uh liked it more than you did. When I was watching this film, what the 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 comparison that leapt immediately to my mind, more than any other sort of politically themed film or other documentaries about youth, none of those were the first thing that occurred to me. The first movie that occurred to me as a as a comparison was The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. <laughs> and the reason for that is that The King of Kong is a fantastically entertaining film. This is, you know, uh, of course, it's the documentary that chronicles the all of the the fighting that goes on at the at the top levels of competitive Donkey Kong playing, you know, who who can get the highest score, the world record for playing the classic arcade game Donkey Kong. And it ends up boiling down to this kind of good versus evil grudge match between uh, the reigning world champ, Billy Mitchell, kind of this this slick guy who's been at the top of the leader chart since he was uh, a young man. And then there's kind of the Steve Wiebe, who's this average Joe kind of husband and father who just discovers that he has a knack for it. And he's doing his best to sort of uh, fight his way to the top. And he's sort of the underdog against Billy Mitchell, the evil, the evil guy who has the establishment on his side. And... Part of the reason that film is so entertaining is because the way the directors 
frame the conflict, they they obviously are picking sides, right? Like Billy Mitchell is the bad guy, Steve Weeby's the good guy, and the film is unapologetic about framing it that way and making it into sort of like one of these experiences where you can cheer for one side and boo against the other side. And I feel like Boys State kind of goes there as well, which is also, just like The King of Kong, it's very entertaining. It I have more qualms about that approach with this film for a couple of reasons. First, there's the fact that, you know, these these are still children, you know, they're still in high school, they haven't really grown up yet, and you get the sense watching this film that they're still kind of forming their ideas of who they are, who they want to be, and why politics is important to them. So kind of framing the action in a way that makes one of the one side the good guy and kind of one side more of the bad guy is is a little bit discomforting. Part of the other reason is I feel like the whole point of the film is to dig into the complexities of what makes the American experiment tick. Like why how why do the two parties kind of entrench along the lines that they do? Uh, why do certain issues enjoy uh, a bigger stage and more of a sideshow than other issues? All of, those, all of those ideas are swirling around in this film, but it ends up being mostly the story of, of Stephen. Stephen is a, uh, a young Latino man. He's, he's the son of, of immigrants. He's kind of going to be the first person from his family to graduate from high school. He's kind of this go-getter type. And as the film goes on, you kind of realize he's kind of the main character. The film really adopts a sympathy for him. And because of that, his opponents, who are uh, primarily white and who are kind of framed more as um, the sorts of political players who are going to do anything that takes to win regardless of principle, they kind of end up being the bad guys. And I, that's, it's engaging to watch. It does raise questions about why the filmmakers are framing it this way, whether that's actually the way it was or whether it's being slanted in a certain way and whether that's the most responsible and beneficial way to present this material to the audience. Well, yeah, I mean, you you kind of taken some of my argument and you say it so well, but yeah, they're just kids. I I I don't think I had crazy political opinions when I was 16, 17. I mean, obviously I don't hold some of those same opinions, but I would have hated uh, to look back and and to hear me talk about my politics when I was 17, 18, especially uh, to see that being used as this sort of metaphor about the American experience. And I, I thought of The Lord of the Flies um, whenever I, I watched this film <laughs> uh, in a way. Uh, but using children to say something about society. The problem is this is a documentary. These are real individuals. And I don't think the documentary ever really allows us to see the seams of the story. So it, it's odd to me because a number of the main characters that were, in a sense, cast or chosen before the, the big event, uh, they actually go on to hold high offices in, uh, in this game, in this boy state. And it feels a little, it feels a little odd to me uh, because – they they chose these individuals before the event, and then they they go on and they they do big stuff. That just that feels weird, and I feel like the documentary needs to explain it because if this documentary wants to be objective, it has to let us know how it's being objective, or if it's being subjective, or it's really leaning in that direction. It it needs to show us how it's how it's moving there. There are speeches that are done, and and characters come up and. They'll give a speech, and we hear a snippet of that, and we hear about maybe abortion and and gun gun control, and then the speech is cut, and that person's done. And what I'm thinking is, was that the entirety of the speech? Why are those cuts there? Uh, and and what is this documentary not telling us? And, and here's what's kind of interesting. This is kind of this personal connection, so our listeners can kind of take this as they may, but. Uh, 
my, my brother's wife, so my sister-in-law, her brother uh, was a part of this. He's a part of, of uh, this boy state. And uh, his name is Jameson. He listens to the show regularly. He's sent in tweets uh, telling us about some of the reviews we've done. And he's in the documentary. And uh, he's actually in the sequence where the talent show occurs. And he's tap dancing. So you'll, you'll probably remember that scene. And at the end, he, he does this tap. And so I, I, I this like jump up and he, he does a heel click and the crowd goes wild. And um, <laughs> I wrote down in my notes, you know, Jameson tap dances his way into our hearts. Um, but <laughs> I, I texted him and I was like, hey, just kind of give me, I don't know, give me some background. And he said a lot of good stuff about the documentary, about its portrayal of this hyper uh, competitiveness, uh, about how most of the most of the students there, uh, they are valedictorians, they are pretty popular in their school and then they show up there's 1100 people who are just like them and then there's this big competition to to make it to the top uh he actually uh was in so they're divided and they get down to 25 people in like their city or something and he was with renee who plays a big part in this documentary and he ran against renee for the texas senate and he beat renee so it's it's fascinating to see how the week changes and the documentary changes because Jameson defeats him. We don't see that in the documentary, but it's, it's just kind of fascinating to hear the story. And one of the things he also said too is he said there was one character in the film who was kind of portrayed as almost like a villain. And he said, you know, everybody really loved him. He was a great guy. Uh, he helped out. He helped clean up. And he just he, – he wasn't on board with that betrayal – or sorry, portrayal. And so it just – it has me thinking – what's here? You know, we get snippets of these characters and they're in interviews and they're talking, but how are these individuals betrayed? And, and what does that mean? I don't know. It just, it just, it makes me a little uncomfortable, kind of, kind of like you, Kevin. And I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but that that's kind of what's rolling around in my mind as I think about this movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to the, the comparison to the King of Kong, I, I feel like, maybe slanting that tale in a way that is definitely biased in a certain sense feels, you know, it's either way, it's not really that big of a deal. Like it's just, it's just a video game. It's just, you know, like trying to get the heart, the high score in Donkey Kong. It's sort of like, it's the stakes seem a little bit like the stakes in the film are obviously very high, but ultimately in the grand scheme of things the stakes are relatively low this film it does seem like it, it's really trying to say something about uh about politics about about youth about the way that the roles that individuals can can play in our political system to really make a difference and and, and that is a little bit of a cliche but it, it is true that you know, we do have this large system, but the system is made of individuals, and individuals can move the needle in certain directions uh, for good or for ill. And when th the film kind of makes its aspirations in that direction clear, it does make the the choice to be a little bit uh, more bichromatic, more more black and white in the way it, it frames the central contest between. Uh, these two individuals uh, to kind of be be elected the the quote unquote governor of Boys State that does feel a little bit uh, problematic or disingenuous or something. It just it feels like it's oversimplifying where it could have been so much more than that. I think back to there, there's a sequence late in the film where uh, Stephen is talking about the importance of compromise and. Uh, Earlier in the film, he makes it clear that you know he's in favor of gun control, and this being Texas, you might expect that that is a position that is not necessarily very popular among high school boys. And so Stephen is kind of talking about how even though he's got this viewpoint that's not necessarily popular, he thinks it's important to go to the other side, to people who don't necessarily agree with him, and to just talk with them and try to try his best to learn from them which is a really i mean it's a really remarkable uh viewpoint and steven is a, obviously a very remarkable young man but 
what I found striking about that sequence is that the filmmakers don't really let us see any of those conversations. They're, we get kind of snippets on the soundtrack of them discussing abortion or uh, or immigration, and we get kind of snippets of what these conversations that Stephen is having with uh, people who disagree with him. But we don't really... The, the film doesn't really let us dig too deeply into that. It kind of prefers to stick with the much more crowd-placing sort of con- uh, conflict between the the up-and-comer who can who decides to go for principle and, and be very very humble versus the other side that's much more concerned with doing whatever it takes to win, and that does feel like. Not as, not a flaw so much as a missed opportunity. This this film, I think, could have been a lot more complex if it had been willing to kind of sit with those conversations and dig a little bit more deeply into why these young men believe what they do and the sorts of conversations that happen when minds are kind of changed. Because that's essentially what this film is about, is trying to... Uh, win uh, another party, another political party, even if it's, you know... Uh, party that's sort of fabricated for purposes of this this program it, at basis it's about trying to convince enough people from the other side to vote for you because your vision or your program or your policies are better and the fact that the film devotes relatively little time to portraying and letting us sit in on those conversations feels like there there was something left on the cutting room floor that would have been maybe more instructive than some of what ended up in the final product. Yeah, I mean there's this there's this really good sequence where it shows the compromises all these individuals are willing to make. So at the beginning and th- throughout this it, the uh, characters uh, in the film, uh, the individuals, uh, they make it a point to say, "Hey, you know, we're we're in a pretty conservative place. I think most of the people here are conservative, most of the people are are white." And and yet there are compromises made that maybe you wouldn't associate with a place like the state of Texas. And so we get this kind of fun sequence where they are making laws that seem like they could be pretty helpful. And it ends with this circling shot um, up at the, the Texas Capitol Rotunda. And um, the best Texas Capitol photography since Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. And so we get this kind of fun sequence. And I, like you, would have enjoyed digging into that because it, it seems like the film wants to say, hey, things could be bad, but but also maybe maybe there's hope. Maybe the younger generation is willing to embrace someone like like Stephen, and, and maybe there are Stevens out there, uh, but we don't fully explore that. It, it's something that's kind of quick, and, and instead, we get the backstabbing. Uh, we get individuals making uh, meme accounts to make fun of the you know, the other uh, political party. And it, it, it kind of makes sense that this would happen because we, you got a lot of competitive people there and it's it's kind of a game. And and so I, I guess I, I walk away and, and, and I say, okay, this film wants to say something, but I don't know how much it can say. And, and the, the editing certainly is trying to, to make a point, but... Is it is it all just filmmaking, or is it is it actually connected to reality, to what really happened in, in that boy state? And then and then two, this is kind of a just a, a minor fun quibble. We get a lot of shots, a lot of shots of the Texas flag and the Texas Capitol, and of course these students have shirts on them with the state of Texas, and, and it says Texas. But it just felt like the film was trying to say, hey. Remember, this is Texas. Hey, remember, this is Texas. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, I, I do that thing I mentioned a couple of weeks ago where I write down Texas equals metaphor. Uh, and, and I think maybe <laughs> you start to see the seams. Well, I say you, you start to see you start to see where the filmmakers are pushing really hard. And I don't, it just it comes across as a little a little too much for me at times. You know, it's interesting that you you bring that up because 
obviously this is just anecdotal, but I do remember like my freshman year of college, you know, meeting up with all the other incoming freshmen and everything. And you immediately knew who all the Texans were because they would yeah. tell you. Yeah. So, I mean, like I, I maybe not being a Texan, maybe that didn't, that didn't grate on me quite as much. It just felt sort of like, Hey, that I've, that kind of feels very, very Texas to to me, an outsider. I do think that the film does make more of an effort to portray complexity, maybe than you're giving it credit for. I think that there's there is one young man who ends up being kind of a supporting player in the the grand drama of Stevens' uh, rise, attempted rise to the governorship. Uh, Robert McDougal, he's in the same quote-unquote party as Stephen, he actually uh, runs against Stephen in the primaries where they try to pick out who is going to be our nominee for this governorship. And Rob is this, uh, you know, he's kind of got this bro vibe going for him. He's, he's very, <laughs> he's very jocular. He's, he's very outgoing. He's got kind of this this manner of speaking that is is very bluff and feels very much like your your average high school boy. He's a very likable presence. He's very interesting because uh, obviously he does not uh, he he loses to Stephen in this primary process, and the film does feature some ruminating from him over the way that he ran his primary campaign and the lessons he learned from it. He kind of said, like, I kind of assumed that everyone here was going to be kind of more about having fun and, and making jokes. So I kind of tried to be really brash. And I learned from watching Steven that actually what you need is somebody who can inspire people to be serious and take these issues seriously. And you kind of start off expecting him to be the kind of the, a stereotype but he reveals himself as somebody who's a lot more politically progressive and also a lot more just just a generally nice person than you might be led to expect from the initial impressions. He's uh, very supportive of Stephen after he loses to him. He actually approaches Stephen at one point and says like, hey, you know, I, I don't want to like attack you or anything. Like, I want to make sure that, you know, whichever one of us wins, it's it's still cool between us. And I think that the way the film portrays that dynamic is kind of what I was hoping for more of throughout the film, because I do think it's very interesting to watch the film not slot Rob into a type in the same way that Stephen's opponents are, are slotted into, but kind of lets his complexities out to play and gives him a good amount of screen time to sort of muse about what politics means to him and the weird incentives there are to to lie or to uh, trespass your own principles because you want to win. And I think the film's at its best when it goes into those places. Yeah, and it, it definitely feels natural because even though Robert is a, is a main player uh, through the first part of the, the movie, uh, he ultimately he loses his party's... Uh, uh, he, he doesn't win the the, the governor race, and uh, he's he's regulated to the background, and it, it felt a little more natural, and it, it felt like okay, uh, we're, we're not just uh, picking and choosing the people who are going to be here at the very end and following them around. We're trying to see this through the eyes of other players, and uh, I think I think that works uh, pretty well. I, I like Renee a lot. Uh, I wish. The character of Ben Feinstein, I don't know. I, I think he's one of the characters where I, I he he becomes he becomes the villain, and I definitely don't agree with many of the things that he says. But it it I, I wish he would have been a little more well rounded, and I don't think the documentary gives that to him. Uh, it, it, instead, we kind of, you know, he's he's what's wrong with politics in our world today, which is a lot to put on uh, a teenage uh, student. But I'll go back to this. I I thought that the documentary, uh, it was I thought it was riveting. I thought it was emotional at times, especially when we get to the end. When, when we get to the announcement 
uh, and we see who who wins the overall prize. Does Steven pick it up? Uh, it's very intense. I'm just I'm just kind of like squeezing my hands together, waiting for that announcement. And uh, the documentary does know how to create suspense. And uh, so there's there's a lot to commend about this, even if I, I do have a number of things that, that make me feel a little uncomfortable. Yeah, well, I think the, the fact that you have to even question at all whether Ben Feinstein, who's the uh, kind of the the party leader of Steve, of the opposition party to Stephen's party, um, the fact that you have to kind of question, well, like, are we getting the whole story or is he actually actually like this? I think that kind of points out the, the flaws in the film's approach in that it could very well be that the filmmakers aren't really aren't really uh, shaping the the footage they have in any overtly biased way. It might just be that that this is the way that Ben uh, presents himself and the kinds of values that he has, and that's just the way it was. But the fact that you can't you, you don't really feel like you can fully trust the filmmakers to to be that even that even handed and that kind of neutral in their approach to this material it kind of speaks to the fact that they've created this this situation where you you know that they're kind of on one side of this contest and because you know that it does call into question the way that some of these uh young men are characterized are they characters or are we actually seeing the real uh, young men at work and uh, doing their political maneuvering. It's just that that lack of certainty feels less like productive ambiguity or uh, subjectivity being used for interesting ends and more just uh, a lack of trustworthiness. And uh, it's, it's a shame because like you said, Wade, this is a very entertaining picture and does cause... Uh, provoke a lot of reflection on the way that politics work and the incentives it creates and the the hope that's still possible, even though we're kind of in the middle of the the real thing right now and kind of it's it's a little bit less hopeful on this end of things. But for these boys at this gathering, there is still some hope that that the the right way of doing politics can prevail. And I think that the fact that this film is kind of able to encapsulate that is, is something to commend about it. Yeah, and I think maybe maybe something that would have helped is uh, uh, less cuts. Uh, give us some more space to see these characters where they are. We're kind of jumping around a lot. Speeches are, are cut up. Interviews are, are cut up. Uh, do something to let us know how these interviews are being framed and who these individuals are. Let us let us see them. Let us just kind of watch them uh, to gaze, and I think that could have uh, worked better. I, I will say this: I I think Jesse Moss, uh, one of the directors, his uh, one of his previous documentaries, The Overnighters. I really I think that film is is great, and uh, he he has in, incredible talent, and uh, his his co director uh, as well. I think she was also a part of. Uh, the Overnighters, Amanda McBain. There's a lot there, and so I uh, look forward to seeing more documentaries from this crew. Listeners, that is our review of Boys State. It's the new documentary on Apple TV+. Plus. I want to make sure I get that right. Apple TV+. Plus. It's streaming now. You can check it out. If you do, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about The Hitchhiker from 1953 here in just a moment.
That song is Cogitation by Idyllic. Listeners, we are uh, so proud of all of you, and we are so thankful that you have taken the opportunity to support us via our Patreon campaign. It's quick, it's easy, and it keeps our show going. Just hop on to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. A lot of different donation levels. And one of our favorites is called the What Can You Buy for $5 level. It's It's got a lot of great perks. And Kevin, I, I wanted to ask you, what could someone buy for five bucks? Five bucks would get you a collection of cookie cutters shaped as the heads of famous presidents. Oh, okay. Okay, so you got you got Taft, you got Herbert Hoover. Yeah, got, Rutherford B. Hayes, you okay. know, all the big ones. Yeah, all, all, all the big ones and the small ones, uh, <laughs> of course. Uh, the ones we forget about, but they were president just like... Every other president. Uh, that's that's really, for five bucks. Now, how many do you get for five dollars? Just one, or kind of a collection pack? Uh, I, I think you you just get a random assortment. I mean, the thing is, it's only five dollars. You know, you, your bang for your buck might not be all that great if we're being perfectly honest. So, I, in practice, most of the cookie cutters are going to end up giving you a cookie that's just sort of like a amorphous blob that you're going to just kind of have to squint. And imagine you see the outline of Rutherford B. Hayes's fantastic beard, perhaps, or, you know, Herbert Hoover's thinning hair on top. Like, you know, it's sort of like whatever. But uh, you can just kind of use your imagination to help things along. I think the main attraction is more just the fact that you get to eat the heads Mm -hmm. of politicians, which Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people can sympathize with these days. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's a power move. I mean, think about eating... (laughs) Think about eating Teddy Roosevelt. How I mean, you gotta feel like you're on top of the world. You're like, I just, I took down Theodore. Uh, I don't know. As, yeah, I mean, T- Teddy Roosevelt seems like the sort of guy who would be very much down for some some good old head snacking. So <laughs> I, I I feel like he would be on board with it, even if it meant his own head was on the chopping block. Yeah, no, he just seems like he seems like that you know that type of guy. He's a rough rider, so. You know, you <laughs> listeners, you can check that out for five bucks, or you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Like I said, we very much appreciate all of your support. Yeah, we also really appreciate hearing from you on on uh, over email and on Twitter. Uh, we did hear from uh, an eagle eared listener uh, this time, Wade, and this I knew this was going to happen eventually. Whenever we deal with a French film, there's going to be some mispronunciations happening. It's just, it's going to happen. Just going to have to make our peace with it. Film Spy 007 featuring Roger Moore as as his little uh, avatar photo, which I think that is well done. Um, he, he says, I'm cringing every time I hear the host pronounce Louis Mal as Malay instead of Mal. And... I I have to I have to say it. You got us. I I think that was my fault, Wade. I led you wrong. I just kind of assumed that it was French, so an e at the end means that it's got that a sound. But that just goes to show how little I know about <laughs> our neighbors, our, our our continental neighbors across the pond. So Louis Mal is the correct. Uh, pronunciation. Uh, we're very sorry for the error. Yeah. Well, and the Christ and Pop Culture official account responded and said that we are fired, Kevin. Oh. I well. I don't hmm. know what to do about that. I, I figured we just kind of keep going, and if this never gets published, who cares? It's it's just for us anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll be like that that one character in Hot Fuzz, who's sort of the neighborhood watch guy that just sort of sits in the room with all the the video the video monitors, and people sort of forget he's there, so they forget to fire him, and he just keeps doing his job, mm-hmm. even though nobody really really remembers. So we can kind of take that as our work ethos going forward. Yeah. Well, it isn't the first time we've mispronounced a name, at least for me, and. 
I, it, I'm going to say it probably won't be the last. It's, it's definitely not going to be the last. I'm sure we, we probably have mispronounced something on this very episode. So, you know, yes. you just got to make your peace with it and, and move on. You just got to move on. Listeners, we also want to take an opportunity to thank you for supporting Christ and Pop Culture. You can become a member of Christ and Pop Culture for five bucks a month and you keep the site going. We, we appreciate that as well. There's some great stuff on the site. If you don't watch or listen to or read anything on Christ and Pop Culture, You definitely need to do that. We've got a couple of interesting articles that relate to television and film. Kevin, this week, KB Hoyle wrote an article on Smallville. It's titled Smallville's Storied uh, Heroism. And uh, I've never watched Smallville, but uh, I, I know there are a lot of Smallville fans out there. Definitely check that out. And then M.V. Bergen wrote an article called Deliver Us, What the Prince of Egypt Has to Say About Suffering. And I need to check that article out because I'm a fan of the Prince of Egypt. It's been a while since I've seen it. I remember seeing it in theaters, and I've seen it a couple times since then. But uh, it's been a few years. But we appreciate that content on the website. And listeners, make sure to do that. And if you'd like, become a member of Christ and Pop Culture. Whatever you do, we appreciate all your support on seeing and believing. Uh, It's something that we very much enjoy, and we love seeing people come alongside us as we go on this uh, film, this weekly film journey. back with the second half of our show, we're going to leave behind the world of high school debates and clip-on ties for something a bit grittier, Wade. Uh, (laughs) You expressed earlier a nostalgia for the days where you could just sort of pick strangers up on the side of the road Mm. just because they stuck their thumb out at you. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if if that is is something that you are actually nostalgic for or if it was something (laughs) you were just playing up for effect. You you know... The answer is is yes and no. Uh, no, because it is a little dangerous. Uh, yes, because at this point, I just I just want the company of other people. <laughs> <laughs> You're so very very lonely. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah, uh, this is uh, this is one of those movies that'll make you think twice about picking up a hitchhiker if you didn't already think twice about it. Yeah, well, it's it definitely wears that on its sleeve. In fact, the very first thing you see in Ida Lupino's 1953 film, The Hitchhiker, is a title card saying that what you're about to see has been based on true events and could possibly happen to you. This thriller slash film noir slash road movie is maybe the most meat and potatoes of all meat and potatoes thrillers with more meat and more potatoes per cubic inch than any other film we've reviewed so far in this film noir series. The film follows two men on a journey in uh, the American Southwest and in Mexico as they take some time off from their families to go on a road trip together. They pick up a hitchhiker who soon reveals himself to be the psychopathic killer who has gone on a murder spree across much of the American West, killing anybody who picks him up. As they take him on a journey to a port town so he can catch a ferry and escape, they encounter danger, not only from him, but from the elements and from their own anxieties. So Wade, like I said, this is kind of a meat and potatoes experience. This is a very lean sort of thriller with none of the, shall we say, Baroque plotting that you might expect from other film noirs, such as uh, The Big Sleep. My question for you is, one of the things that we've experienced over the course of this entire series has been each film that we've reviewed has taken film noir tropes, kind of a film noir aesthetic, and put its own spin on that aesthetic for its own purposes. 
that's obviously true of Ida Lupino's stab at this film as well. My question for you is, what did you make of the particular spin that she found for this story? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a fascinating film. And from what I understand, uh, it's the only noir movie from uh, the 40s and 50s that was directed by a, a woman. And so we mentioned last week, Kevin, how our eyes were kind of going to be attuned, hopefully, to that. And there are a number of things that we'll uh, point out throughout this review that hopefully will we'll kind of uh, walk viewers through what makes this one a little bit different from some of the others that we've reviewed. One thing that stands out, and I mentioned uh, the femme fatale in Elevator to the Gallows last week and uh, just the tweak on that in that film. Uh, there is no femme fatale in this movie. And in fact, it's kind of revolutionary in that it's a noir that does not have a single female cast member. Uh, it is uh, driven almost literally by this uh, toxic masculinity, um, by an egocentric, psychotic killer. And, and really, that's kind of what we explore in, in this movie. Um, the men here are not pulled into a web of deception by, by a woman. Uh, in, instead, it's, it's them, and it's them alone, and they're, they're trying to deal uh, with, with the... Uh, with the turn of events here. And so that's kind of fascinating. I'll also point out, too, uh, some of the heroes in the film uh, turn out to be the uh, Mexican police officers. And there's this uh, Mexican uh, detective. And he is extremely helpful. And in 1953, I I wonder if that's revolutionary. I, I'm, I'm not sure. It feels a little revolutionary. Um, but that definitely seems like uh, it's, a, it's a different stroke when it comes to to uh, noir films, and um, I, I like some of the twists here, I, I, I really do some of the uh, some of the changes because, like you mentioned, Kevin, there's nothing really kind of special about the plot. It's really all about the execution, but I think the execution is is very good in this movie. Yeah, well, to to your observation about the uh, the Mexican cast members, this is the same time period and the same genre that gave us uh, Charlton Heston wearing bronzer in Orson Welles's Touch of Evil. So obviously the film, the American film studio system of this time was not shy about whitewashing uh, roles for uh, actors uh, of Latino descent in its film noir. So whether or not that's revolutionary, I don't know if maybe it merits a label that great, but it's definitely maybe a little bit out of the ordinary from what you might expect from uh, a more mainstream release like this. One thing that I found interesting about this film was was that setting and the way it's used. I mean, I was thinking a lot of Wells's Touch of Evil while watching this film because that, like this film, is set kind of in a you know in a desert town in 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 the southwest there's a lot of contact with uh mexicans and with people kind of the the sorts of people who live right along the border and very much concerned with that milieu uh but wells's approach to that is he still kind of bathes a lot of his film in shadows there's a much more recognizably noir aesthetic or, or conventionally noir aesthetic to Touch of Evil that you don't really see as much of in this film. In fact, this film is almost oppressively sunbathed. It's it's film noir where the darkness is kind of replaced by this this skull this this skull, white skull bleached by the sun aesthetic where these guys are just they're in a very inhospitable environment. They're being held at gunpoint pretty much 24-7 by a psychopath, and there's really no escape for them. So in that way, it does feel very recognizably noir in that they're entrapped, just like so many noir protagonists are entrapped by their circumstances. And Lupino just kind of lets that play out. She doesn't do any cutting away. I, I, I read a review that uh, made much of the fact that there's no attempt to sort of cut away to these men's families as, as they kind of wonder where their husbands have 
have disappeared off to and kind of trying to inject a drama that way. This We stick pretty closely to the three men in that car, cutting away slightly to the uh, the investigators who are kind of trying to catch this killer uh, kind of as a police procedural more than a conventional drama. And I think that, again, kind of contributes to this oppressive feeling where these these men maybe shouldn't have just kind of gone off on their own without really telling their wives where they're going because they're kind of looking to go off the reservation, so to speak. They kind of want to go off and have a good time on their own. And it's that kind of desire to break the bond, break what they see as the shackles of domesticity that kind of gets them into this fix. And the rest of the time they're spent kind of paying the price for that. And that does feel recognizably noir, even if there aren't any Venetian blinds casting shadows across their faces. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it is funny because the killer uh, at one point implies that maybe they weren't as being uh, they weren't being as pure in their intentions with the trip as as maybe they they should have been and uh, as a result their potential sins or at least mistakes get them get them in trouble it's fascinating too because most noirs um, they are set in these kind of claustrophobic cities uh, and they're obviously some of the main characters are people who are cut off from society here the setting is different it's in the Southwest, in parts of Mexico. And we trade this, as I mentioned, claustrophobic, uninviting city for a harsh, uninviting desert. These, these landscapes that further emphasize how these characters are cut off from society. And there are a couple times when, when God is referenced here. One of the characters tells a, a young girl... Uh, to, to, to go with God because she's kind of escaped or he, he thinks she's escaped from the killer who could have done something to hurt her. Uh, there's another point where uh, a, one of the men yells, oh, please, God, hear me. And the killer says, leave him alone. Can't you see he's praying? Uh, and there's, there's something about the image of a man uh, without any strength, a man who's held at gunpoint in the desert praying to God and wondering if he's hearing him. And so it further emphasizes the spiritual alienation of these characters here in the story. And then there's something else too that that I found fascinating is I was reading uh, that around this time is is when interstates become uh, were, were built and become more they became more popular. And so this is also, uh, w- with new technology uh, comes new problems. And uh, we see how this world is changing and the people are struggling to catch up with that change. So on the surface, like I mentioned, it, it might not look like much, but there's a lot going on here. And uh, I, I, I think this film uh, deserves to be recognized as, as one of the uh, unique noirs of classic Hollywood. Lupino makes really good use of the camera in this film as well. Circling back to your comment about about God and, and about kind of this this sense of abandonment that is a thread that runs throughout the picture, Lupino often chooses to uh, shoot the car as it travels along these dusty dirt roads from a very high angle. There's a sense of of observation that this camera is allowing us to assume perspectives uh, outside of these these men's uh, situation for just an instant. The the way that this film is cut together is very propulsive. There there's kind of a a short vignette at a gas station, and then there's another one of these high angle shots of the car driving down the road, and then they get a flat tire, and so they have to get out and fix that, and then they do, and then there's another high angle shot of them making a turn onto a different road, and the way that these little flashes of a different perspective serve a couple of purposes. It does. Uh, accentuates the feeling of of abandonment of loneliness uh again of the the entrapment of these men just all by themselves uh on on lonely roads with this 
remorseless killer in the back seat. It emphasizes the fact that maybe there is somebody watching who just chooses not to intervene at some point. And it also, the propulsiveness of these, uh, of the film's pacing, make this, give this film a real lean quality. Like this is not a film that is going to waste your time. This isn't a film that's going to give you a breather. You're kind of stuck in this story all the way through to the bitter end, uh, just like the characters. To to quote Double Indemnity, it's straight down the line. <laughs> and there's going to be an end point one way or another. Somebody's going to, to uh, suffer some violence by the end of this journey. And everyone knows it, and the audience knows it as well. Yeah, and I think the... The performances at the heart of this are really great. Edmund O'Brien and Frank Lovejoy play the two fishermen who are who are captive, and uh, William Tallman plays Emmett Myers, this this killer. And when he sleeps, he keeps one eye open, which is this nice sort of creepy uh, effect. And uh, you know, Emmett throughout the film uh, emphasizes his freedom. So if we're th- if we're thinking about noir and we're thinking about agency. And, and personal freedom. Uh, he is someone who says, I'm going to do what I want when I want to do it. At one point, he says, uh, somebody says, have you ever been on the other end of a gun? And he says, no, and I never, I never will. And that becomes a, a treasured thing for him. The gun is how he does that. And this is nothing, uh, I would say, new. I don't know if it was new at the time, um, but it, it definitely feels like the gun is uh, this this phallic Im- imagery throughout the movie, uh, and there's there's something here about this man's uh, masculinity and how he uses uh, that weapon to control individuals, and when the gun is knocked out of his hands at the end of the movie, everything changes. Uh, he is unable to to take anyone in a fight. Uh, he's he's handcuffed, and he's seen as sort of this coward, and he he freaks out because he has lost the thing that is most treasured in life, and that's that's freedom and that's power, and just just kind of observing that, uh, you know, Lapino or or Lapine, Lapina, hopefully I'm pronouncing it right, um, and, and seeing what she chooses to highlight and the, the compositions and the angles there, uh, they produce a, a startling effect. If, if I would say there's one weakness to the film, uh, so throughout the movie, I, I got a little irritated because I felt like the two men should have taken their chance to run away earlier. And... Towards towards the end of the movie, they do have a chance to run away, and one of them, uh, their foot gets caught, and uh, they hurt themselves. And the other individual comes back, and he allows himself to be captured because he he's not going to allow himself to leave without his friend. And there's something sacrificial there. And the the killer says, "Hey, like the reason that you didn't escape sooner um, is because you both wanted to escape. You weren't going to be selfish." Uh, I, I I kind of felt the opposite at first early in the film because uh, it seemed like somebody could have you know these soldiers who uh, one of them is is a soldier uh, or was a soldier in World War II uh, one of them could have you know sacrificed themselves and and maybe gotten shot and saved the other uh, and took an opportunity and, and they didn't so at the start I was I was kind of thinking oh is the film going to come around and say oh they they didn't escape because they were both being selfish and neither one wanted to take a bullet for the other uh, but then the movie comes around and says no actually they they weren't selfish uh, they were waiting for both of them to get away and so there's there's uh, it doesn't always work at that level but it, that's kind of a minor minor thing overall in the, the grand scheme of of this film yeah, I don't know if that bothered me as much because it did it I mean on its on a surface level it does seem that that is the case that there were opportunities that they these characters uh that the script kind of had them not take because there wouldn't be a movie if they had taken them. Um but as the movie goes on it seems to me more to be kind of of a piece of the noir film where a character in a noir doesn't uh, always act rationally or in his or her best interest, they're kind of 
again, I keep coming back to the, the operative word entrapped. There's something in the universe that is keeping them in this uh, negative cycle that they're trapped in or in this plot that they can't extricate themselves from. And I think that might be the most noirish thing of all about this picture is, is the fact that these characters, yeah, you know, maybe they could have teamed up against this one guy and one of them would have gotten shot, but it would have been okay. You know, maybe they could have been a little bit braver because they'd, you know, seen combat in a literal war before, but they don't. And that tension of, well, why don't they? You want them to so badly is, I think, very uh, productive of, uh, of noir as a whole. I think it also serves a, another purpose in that it it kind of you know the the fact that the killer does taunt them for that saying like you could you idiots you guys could have done a whole lot better for yourselves if you had just had fewer scruples like me. I think Lupino does a really interesting thing in that she lets the killer's perspective be a little seductive. I mean, you're never really sympathizing with him or on his side or kind of enjoying his actions, but you do kind of see things through his eyes a little bit. There's a really great shot uh, in the maybe the first act of the film. So the hitchhiker hasn't been in the car for too long. They kind of get out to to take a break and and, uh, read a map and kind of figure out where they're going. And the killer decides sort of like he's going to play a game with them. He's going to torment them a little bit. So he has one of them go out and hold out uh, uh, a beer can in his hand, and he says to the other passenger, he says, "You have to, you have to take this rifle, and you need to shoot that can out of your friend's hand. If you don't, I'm going to shoot you." And Lupino sh- uh, uses her camera and places it right behind the barrel of the gun, and kind of lets the audience experience what it would be like to be looking down the sights of that. There's kind of this queasy tension, obviously, because it's incredibly dangerous, but it also puts the audience in mind of what the killer says about having gun, the power that it gives him, the security it makes him feel to be the one holding the gun, not being the one who has the gun pointed at him. And the the camera tells the entire story there. We never experience looking down the barrel of that rifle from the guy holding the can, his perspective. We only see it from the perspective of the guy who's about to take the shot. And I know, I again, that if that's not noir in some way, I just, <laughs> it, I don't know what is. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of power dynamics going on in this film. And, uh, well, okay, when you think about, uh, when you, when you think about, a story where a good person has a gun on a bad person and they're holding them prisoner. What's the tension in that story? Well, the tension is uh, that the good person will let down their guard and the bad person who's you know powerful will attack. In this film, it, it, it's the opposite, right? We get this purely from the perspective of the two individuals. So, they look at it as, oh, I'm always at risk versus us looking at it and saying, well, the killer is always at risk because they, he could, you know, he one moment he turns the other direction, he could be attacked. So we definitely get this picture from the perspective of a menacing evil uh, that it's re- there's really no way to escape. They are kind of all-knowing, all-seeing. Uh, you know, he doesn't even go to sleep. His eye stays open at all times. Uh, so I definitely understand it. It's still kind of a little frustrating because it's like, oh, just jump on the guy when, you know, he's doing this. And um, But as you mentioned, it feels very noir, and there's something kind of that, that works about it despite – Uh, the frustrating nature, which maybe that's how we're supposed to feel. Maybe we're supposed to feel very frustrated because we can't, we can't do anything. And that's what we're supposed to feel in a story like this. Yeah, that's uh, definitely maybe a good place to leave it for now. Listeners, that is our review of Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker. If you've had a chance to see this film, or if you're interested in checking it out after hearing this review, it is streaming for free with Amazon Prime, so you can give it a look and let us know your thoughts. As we've mentioned before, we love to hear from our listeners about what they're watching and what they think of the films that we've been watching. 
Wade, I think that wraps up uh, this episode. <laughs> We're going to move on. There's at least one more film left in our Summer of Darkness series. And uh, maybe it'll extend beyond that. Who knows how long the Summer of Darkness is, is going to last. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows how long this year of darkness is going to last? Uh, <laughs> hey, you said it, not me. <laughs> yeah, we still need to tackle at least one neo-noir film. So we're, we're still kind of dialoguing back and forth which one we should look at. So listeners, if you have any suggestions, make sure to send those in at Pod on Twitter, at Pod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. That's the end of the episode. Make sure to rate and review the show. Share it with someone who um, appreciates a little darkness in their life. Uh, Send them the the Noir series. I I hope they enjoy it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com and our Patreon supporters. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.